If I were to tell you that there is one story that shaped the South more than any other, I bet it wouldn't take you too long to figure out what it is. Immediately after the Civil War, Confederate veterans and their families started telling stories. Stories about why they'd fought, stories about the South before the war, and stories that warped and reframed the narrative not just of the South, but of the entire country. The Lost Cause is perhaps one of the most powerful and damaging American stories. It shows up in our textbooks, in our public monuments, in film, and of course, in the rhetoric of our politicians. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are talking about the rise and fall of Lost Cause Monuments with Connor Town O'Neill, a producer of the White Lies podcast and author of the fascinating book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. Connor's book suggests there may be no better example of this myth in action than in the story of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Forrest was many things. He was a man who went from relative obscurity to a general in the Confederate Army. He was a slave owner. He was a man who butchered freedmen soldiers who were attempting to surrender. He was a key figure in the Trail of Tears. And later, he was a leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And yet monuments to this man and to his legacy that has been completely reframed and warped litter the American landscape. From Selma to Nashville and beyond. Forrest even served as the namesake character for the beloved film icon, Forrest Gump. So, what is the lost cause? And how have we gotten Forrest's story so wrong? And then how has our recent reckoning on race and American history changed how we understand him today? And is there a possibility that we're going to see a new lost cause myth born out of the 2020 election and the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol? <laughs> you know, just a few small light subjects that we're tackling on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Connor Town O'Neill, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I believe you were working on the White Lies podcast down in Selma, Alabama, when you came across a controversial, relatively new monument to Nathan Bedford Forrest that sort of served as the entry point for your book. Yeah, that's right. Can you tell us about that? So I was in Selma on uh, the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, the, the attack by Alabama law enforcement on nonviolent demonstrators at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge there in, in Selma. 50 years later, President Obama is in town, 40,000 other people are there, and it's just totally uh, overcrowded with people. And, and so I'm desperate for a place to park. And it occurs to me, you know, Selma, like a lot of these southern cities, has a pretty extensive cemetery, you know, magnolias, Spanish moss, the whole midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil thing in its own system of roads. So I'm like, oh, I'll stash my car there. It's just a couple blocks down to the bridge. But as I turn in, I start seeing all these signs, Confederate Memorial Circle closed, no trespassers. And so I just kind of, it's like, huh? I, I know that it sounds naive to say this now, given everything that's happened since. And, you know, honestly, it's probably a little naive of me at the time even. But it was just sort of like, huh? Confederates? On the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday? Like, what's going on here? So I, so I walk over and, and just sort of ask the people that are kind of standing guard around the part of this Confederate section of the cemetery, like, what are, what are y'all doing here? I come to learn that this group who calls themselves the Friends of Forest has really spent the better part of the last two decades fighting about this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that they had put up. And, you know, of course, given, you know, Forrest's biography, 
putting up a statue of him would be controversial anywhere. It's all the more so in Selma, though, given it's how central it is to the, the civil rights movement and to voting rights. But to com- compound that even further, they do it the year 2000, which is the in the same week that the city had inaugurated its first black mayor. So it is, as you might imagine, enormously controversial. It's protested, derided, defended. The, the, the mayor, it becomes a sort of crucible for the mayor. It's eventually moved out to the cemetery, but then it's stolen. And its theft only kicks off more debates and protests, uh, eventually a federal lawsuit about whether the Friends of Forest could replace this statue. And so by the time that I meet them in March of 2015, they had won that federal lawsuit and were there that day, well, in part to prepare the grounds for the replacement of the statue. Of course, you know, they were also there to sort of thumb their nose, it seemed, at the at the 50th anniversary event. But the, really the dissonance of that encounter just raised all of these questions about who Forrest was and what it meant to put up a statue to him in 2015. And those are really the, the questions that, that, that the book is grappling with and that I began to research then uh, in, in, the, in the months after that. But then that summer, uh, it really sort of touches a third rail because just a few weeks after they end up replacing this statue of Forrest, Dylan Roof murders nine African-Americans in the basement of Mother Emanuel AME Church. And the, those Charleston Nine murders kick off this referendum on, on Confederate symbolism. And so as those those protests and, and campaigns to remove Confederate monuments break out, I start following the, the statues of Forrest in particular. Your book focused on telling the story of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Can, can you just tell us a little bit about who he was as a person and who he has become as, I guess, a, a myth? So Forrest is born in... 1821 in in middle Tennessee. He's not born to uh, a particularly wealthy family. And he really sort of comes of age with the frontier and and sort of moves west as the country does. And once he comes of age, he gets into slave trading and and opens a pretty large slave market in Memphis uh, in the 1850s and becomes, you know, by some counts, one of the wealthiest men in the South through that human trafficking. And Memphis, of course, is the sort of interior capital of, of, of the slave trade. And of course, becomes so wealthy because of the, the sort of second middle passage in those years as the Deep South opens up, as the sort of plantation slavery through the Black Belt is, is massively expanding. Forrest is really crucial in that and lines his pockets with the torture of, uh, that is you know, central to that. So he's, he's, a, he's a really wealthy slave trader in Memphis. He, he becomes an elected official then as well. When the war does break out, he uses his own fortune to equip his own cavalry troop fighting for the Confederacy. And he enlists as a private, you know, and, and I think it's important there to distinguish Forrest from someone like Lee, one of the first families of, of Virginia, a West Point graduate, a sort of epitome of the, the Southern gentleman. Forrest is much more brash, uncouth, and untrained. You know, he, he didn't go to West Point, hardly went to school at all. He, he's lettered, but by no means a man of letters. And so he enlists as a private, but becomes the most promoted soldier, north or south, and is, is kind of revered as this instinctual military genius 
historian and novelist Shelby Foote called him one of the two geniuses to emerge from the Civil War, the other being Abraham Lincoln. So he's a vicious and, and effective cavalry leader, but he's fighting in the neglected Western theater of the war. As one historian, Charles Royster, put it, Forrest is a, a major figure in minor battles and a, a minor figure in, in major battles. So again, you know, to compare that to Lee, you know, he's, he's not there at Gettysburg, for example. And, and that will go on to, to loom large in, in his myth. If only Forrest had been given a, a shot, you know, well, then maybe the South might have won the Civil War. Anyway, uh, late in the war, he's the commanding officer at Fort Pillow, which was a racial massacre. He's accused of war crimes from that. Can you detail what those are for us? I mean, the war crimes he's accused of? So Fort Pillow, it's a fort just north of Memphis. It had changed hands a couple times, Union and Confederate. It's technically in Union hands, although it's mostly sort of been abandoned by 1864. There are a couple of Union troops there, including two troops of uh, the, the U.S. colored troops. So the Emancipation Proclamation, in addition to declaring those enslaved people in, in Confederate territory to be freed, it, it also calls for the enlistment of, of black troops. And of course, that is that is anathema to the to the Confederate ideal. The, the whole justification for the practice of slavery is that the men and women they were enslaving are in, inherently inferior. And, and and another sort of paternalistic way that they're they're happy, they're contented in in their enslavement, that they're sort of benevolent masters and and you know grateful slaves. Of course, you know, preposterous, but but that's the sort of prevailing ideology. And so to have the formerly enslaved take up arms against the Confederacy of, of you know, flies and flies in the face of the whole idea of their revolution. And so Confederates, this is the first time Forrest's troops uh, encounter black troops in battle. They they outnumber and, and, and quickly overrun uh, the, the Union troops at, at Fort Pillow and massacre them. You know, there are reports, uh, letters written from Confederate soldiers describing how these black soldiers would, would drop to their knees surrendering and, 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 you know, be murdered. One soldier reports, you know, Forrest ordered them shot down like dogs. Forrest's own report of the battle talks about the, the river run red with blood and that he hopes that this battle could prove that uh, black soldiers could not cope with Southerners. So it, it, it is really this sort of, it, it's, it's a racial massacre. Um, it's, it's investigated. And the report from that investigation indicates, you know, that, that, that Forrest could be brought up on the charges for this, but th- they weren't pursued. But I think most fair-minded people who look at the, the evidence from Fort Pillow would, I mean, it's, it's no doubt a racial massacre and, and that, you know, Forrest was committed war crimes there. So that's in 64. Of course, the war ends in 65. Um, Forrest is, is still fighting in the Deep South. His, his last stand is in Selma. Um, but that is a, uh, he, his, he's, you know, got a couple of thousand troops there and, and they're quickly uh, defeated by, by the Union. And, and then the war's over. But Forrest doesn't, doesn't give up fighting by any means uh, after the war. He uh, is tapped to lead, uh, to, to be the, serve as the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in the years after the war. And so is the, the figurehead of this, you know, vigilante uh, guerrilla war waged during Reconstruction to, to undermine that project of, you know, fully vesting the formerly enslaved with equal protection, with voting rights, and, and to really sort of forge that, that multiracial democracy that even now we're, we're, we're still, as a country, still struggling to achieve. But in, 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 in those days, Forrest, again, is sort of front and center in, in working to uh, maintain a, a society structured around the ideology of, of white supremacy. He, he's often called the founder of, 
of the KKK, but he was the first Grand Dragon, but he was kind of tapped by by other men there in Memphis to to lead it. Is that what happened? The the clan first starts in Pulaski, Tennessee, so so, so south central, and there a sort of den, a, a sort of local outfit that is part militant, part performance. There's a sort of spectacle uh, that is that is central to, to what the Klan is doing. Of course, the project from the start being to, to intimidate the, the formerly enslaved. But one of them sort of sees potential for something larger than just a kind of um, the, the high carnival of night, as they call it uh, at first. But yeah, they could take it national. You know, they could they could wage a sort of guerrilla war of intimidation and, and, and violence uh, across the South and help, you know, sort of return the South to its to its pre-war state. And, and to do that, they, they realize that they need a kind of figurehead, someone um, someone that could help in, in recruiting these kind of localized. De- it's a very decentralized project. And but but having someone at the top who who everybody knows is crucial. And, and, and who better than the Wizard of the Saddle? Nathan Bedford Forrest, who who even then, sort of after the war, was taking on this kind of mythic presence in the South. So I want to drill down on that point about um, what you said about the statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest first going up in Selma after the first black mayor had been elected, because that was kind of the pattern historically, was any time there was a major advancement of civil rights for black Southerners, there was an immediate pushback to kind of codify this lost cause mythology. And in places like Selma and in Memphis, a lot of that took the form of iconography of of Nathan Bedford Forrest, a person who, by most counts, nobody would say is somebody who should be revered. Uh, I mean, you walked through how he could be kind of seen as maybe more of the everyman, pseudo self-made man than Robert E. Lee was. And I can understand like that appealing to a certain class of soldier who were more like Forrest than they would have been like Lee. But involved with the Trail of Tears, involved with racial massacres, involved with slave trade, involved with the Ku Klux Klan, like lots of lots of strikes against him. And yet he became somebody who who continues to be praised by some Southerners, uh, in part because of the scaffolds of mythology that we've built up around him, starting basically, I guess, with the response to Reconstruction in the South, where Black Southerners and white allies were creating these fusion governments to advance civil rights in the South uh, for for white and black people. And Southerners like Forrest and the KKK pushed back violently. Part of what you're tracing in your book is, is the emergence of that story itself. And Forrest is kind of the representative of it. But walk us through how we get from violent Klan leader to a joke in Forrest Gump as as the namesake of the character uh, that Tom Hanks plays. There is a sort of whitewashing done to Confederate memory that is partly the failing of a collective American memory, but it, but it's also you know it was sort of actively made that way. It wasn't just we don't we don't have a sort of hazy sense of the, the Confederacy as a benign thing, you know, as shown by the flag on the the roof of the Dukes of Hazard's car um, or, or, you know, the, the jokes in the, in the Tom Hanks movie, but because 
groups like the the UDC uh, in the years after the war really did a, a, a massively effective job at advancing these these ideas of, of what's called the, the lost cause. Because of course you have, well, you have a number of problems, one of them being a messaging problem. Because in the lead up to the war, of course, the Confederate leaders are really telling anyone who would listen just what the, the project of the Confederacy is about, that it, this is in no uncertain terms about maintaining and expanding a slave society and in doing so explicitly on the idea that the men and women that they are enslaving were inherently inferior. And you can, this is, you know, it, it, it doesn't take weeks in the archive to find this stuff, right? These are the documents of the of secession. These are the, the Alexander H. Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy's cornerstone speech in, in the lead up to the war. Like it was, it was out there. It was, it was well known. Um, it, and then, but then of course, they lose and, and three quarters of a million soldiers have died. And as you're sort of trying to knit the country back together, you have this problem of like, all, all, so many people died because you wanted to keep having, keep enslaving people. And so there's this kind of like public project of, 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 of revising public memory uh, through textbooks, through monuments, through you know, through storytelling, through works of literature and, 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 and movies to, to cast the war in terms of, you know, brother against brother, the, the sacrifice of the soldier, the tragedy of their death, uh, and to sidestep these thornier questions of, of what it meant that 11 former and future U.S. states were fighting violently to create an ethnostate in, in the South. Uh, so, so that, you know, that, there's there's all of this effort to cast the master as benevolent, the the, the enslaved as as grateful and, and contented. Uh, the war about states' rights or tariffs, and 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 not about the moral bankruptcy in in the violent defense of this this system of slavery. And it was it was hugely effective, right? When I walk into my ninth grade history classroom in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the teacher is there at the front of the room talking about how the the, the war was about states' rights because it's it's difficult to grapple with. It's it's a it's difficult to square up with in in what we tell ourselves is this this achievement of democracy, this, this shining example of freedom across the world, these ideas of American exceptionalism are really hard to say with a straight face if you're going to square up to the actuality of our past. And so, you know, white Americans, North and South, have some incentive to participate in the magical thinking of, of what the Civil War was about and what the Confederacy was about and, and even who someone like Nathan Bedford Forrest was. Uh, he was a self-made man. We won't talk about the fact that he, you know, pulled himself up by his bootstraps through human trafficking. Uh, he was a, a, a keen, instinctual military leader and say nothing about how he wielded that power to, to you know, massacre surrendering black soldiers and to, and more largely to establish his, his military genius in a fight to gain slavery. So, so yeah, it's, it's this massive program of, of, of whitewashing that, that has really sort of helped keep Forrest in a, in a, in a national consciousness in a way that doesn't fully uh, square to the, the full meaning and, and, and really sort of horror of, of, of what his life was like. Coming up after the break, Connor and I discuss how a summer of Black Lives Matter protests changed his book and the January attack on the U.S. Capitol. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. 
my mask protects everyone else and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You have an epigraph at the beginning of your book, comes from Viet Thanh Nguyen, but the quote reads, All wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield and the second time in memory. And as I've been reading this book, you know, I'm kind of struck by the similarities. He's a Vietnamese author, and he talks about these group of South Vietnamese people who in some ways profited off of something that was very similar to a lost cause. They convinced a lot of refugees that, you know, there were guerrillas waiting somewhere in Thailand that were always going to come and liberate Vietnam from the communists. There's also similar energy that maybe animated the Russian consciousness that kind of seduced them back to totalitarianism and Putin, this kind of restoration of glory uh, that's just kind of waiting in the wings. It's very seductive. And it makes sense. Like, I can understand why eighth grade white boys sitting in a history class in Selma, Alabama, are prone to being kind of seduced by this narrative that the South was actually worth fighting for. But I guess the departure from that, and certainly different from how Germany would teach its history from World War II, for instance, is that the South lost and yet somehow was able to rewrite the curriculum for the entire country. And that that seems unique between the North and South Vietnamese and the North and South Koreans. You know, we don't have South Korea telling the, the North Korean story <laughs> uh, as much as North Korea might tell everybody else's story. And so I, I wonder, you know, you write about growing up in Pennsylvania and James Carville quotes, notwithstanding, that is not the South, uh, as far as I know. So <laughs> what was your personal understanding and experience reckoning with your own history and your own upbringing I think for a long time it was magical thinking, but maybe magical thinking of a different sort. Um, you know, what Robert Penn Warren calls the treasury of virtue, this, this sense that Northerners, by virtue of their association with a Union army, the, the emancipating force, is, is sort of wholly good and, 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 and you know, allows the, the Civil War to exist as a sort of event horizon, you know, Racism, insofar as it's still a problem, is, is is a problem, quote, down there. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, like, it, I, I grew up without thinking much about race, and, and or, or rather that, like, race was a problem for other people. You know, and, and thinking about this in terms of something like the, the civil rights movement, like, oh, right, r- race was a problem for black people, and then some brave people stood up and marched, and then they solved it, and, and it's all good. I mean, this is, you know, sort of... <laughs> It was it was even more inchoate than that growing up. You know, it was just something you didn't you didn't think much about, and especially not thinking about something like whiteness. Um, that, you know, it it was just the norm. It was just the given. The sort of like the room tone. You're, you're not supposed to hear it. it. It just is. You're not supposed to think much about whiteness. It just is, and and not at all wrestling with the sort of questions about where it came from, what it even specifically references and how that has changed and and been so contingent and, but always been, you know, a force for structuring society and and hoarding opportunities and and resources and and, and wealth. Um, And that was shaping and and, and not thinking about all the ways that it was shaping my life too. Uh, How my parents were able to buy their house, what school district that 
neighborhood was in, how the school was funded, you know, how I was seen by my teachers, by police officers, how that asset of the house would then go on to fund, you know, my, co- you know, college loans, all of that stuff, all the ways that that race functions as a way to, to provide benefits to some and, and at the exclusion of others, I, you know, I wasn't thinking about it. It I was just sort of moving. My life was moving along these lines that that I was paying no attention to and not being asked to really pay much attention to. And again, I know I know this sounds so so naive and and it is, but it it was just sort of um, I was just sort of proceeding as the way allowed. And it really wasn't until I started wrestling with these questions about the Civil War, the Confederacy, the legacy of slavery that I came to see like, oh, it's, it's really convenient. For, for a northerner to think about it as, as someone else's problem. But of course, this idea of, of, of a racial hierarchy, even if it finds its most visible and most sort of conspicuous expression in the Confederacy, in the sort of plantation slavery system in, in the Deep South, these, these questions of race and, and how race operates as a way of structuring American life was of course had a, had everything to do with me. I had a stake in this too, and so I came up. I came to it in this very roundabout way, right? I moved, I moved to the deep south and dug deep into, you know, the history and the um, historiography of of the Civil War, only to sort of come full circle and see like, oh, this is this is really this is an American thing. This isn't a Southern thing. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. A lot of Southern students continue, and as you mentioned, uh, some Northern students as well continue to kind of be fed the narrative that the South was fighting for states' rights. They weren't fighting for slavery. You do a great job of disabusing that notion. The South was fighting for slavery. I think sometimes Northern students learn a weird kind of inversion of that. They learn that the North was fighting to end slavery, and and that's not quite right either. They were The North was fighting to preserve the Union. So the, the South was fighting... To keep slavery, but the North was fighting to keep the Union together, and the question of whether or not slavery should be ended was was really forced by runaway and emancipated slaves themselves. You know, kind of demanding that of Abraham Lincoln, um, and a, a lot of Northern soldiers were ambivalent or, or, or hostile to uh, to the question itself. Yeah, and we see a lot of that kind of spill forth in in some of the same civil rights fights that were happening in northern cities in the 1960s and 70s as they were happening. But I guess why I wanted to have this conversation right now, because a lot of our listeners may be thinking, okay, this is, you know, 150 years ago, this is 50 years ago. But you look at America and the South right now, you know, I was listening to you talk a little bit about the, the early days of the KKK and how it was almost more pageantry. And then they thought, oh, well, we need a recognizable figurehead to kind of give uh legitimacy to it um and you know i'm thinking of of the boogaloo boys and i'm thinking of the proud boys and i'm thinking of the attack on the capitol on january 6th and and the legitimacy that donald trump gave to that and the way that he tried to delegitimize the election results of november of 2020 you look at that and think well it's so clearly a lie how could anybody believe it and yet you see that you know somewhere between Two thirds and three quarters of Republican voters believe the former president's claims that the election was stolen from him. And you look at the way that the lost cause myth spread throughout the South, you know, in the late 19th century and early 20th century and and continues to be something that we deal with today. And it just seems like 
if there is a moment in time that we should study right now, it is that moment that you spent your book looking into as it was coming to press uh, is when we started having a lot of these conversations about tearing down. I mean, some of the monuments you were writing about were being tear- <laughs> torn down as as the book was printing. What was that process like for you? And and what parallels have you seen that it's important for our audience to understand? Yeah, it was it it was you know they they had to sort of tear the book out of my hands this summer, and I was saying, oh no no, no I'm just going to rewrite the ending one more time, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> as, you know as these protests and and and, and the statues toppling in the wake of the the murder of George Floyd this summer, and so it's landing in this moment when when again we're thinking about the meaning of of these monuments and and the, the very real structures of inequality that they represent and the, and the, the sorts of white supremacist violence that they're that they're tied to. And as one great, you know, person that I interviewed for my book said, you know, the sort of white supremacists drawing their power from these statues, as, as was the case in, in something like Charlottesville. So, so yeah, it's it's landing in this moment that where it does feel like very much sort of front page, front of mind issues. But it, but it's sort of it it it's it's always close by. Like it's it's always sort of ready to 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 flare up. Even if I couldn't have predicted the, the the specifics of the moment that it's coming into, it it, it did feel inevitable that we would be roiled by um, these issues again, because it, we're what we're grappling in some ways what we're grappling with right now are the same questions that we were grappling with at the end of the Civil War, which is basically can a settler slave society fully transform itself into a multiracial democracy? That's the question of the Civil War. That's the question of Reconstruction. That's the question of, you know, former Confederates returning to power and implementing Jim Crow. That's the, the, the question of, you know, something like redlining in the North. That's a question, of course, of the civil rights movement. And, and that's really the backlash to the, the civil rights movement, the sorts of, of law and order policies, the war on drugs. And then, of course, that's, that's the question now. I mean, you look at people screaming to, to not count votes in Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia. I mean, this, it's still this question of can you know can we have can we have a multiracial democracy or or will the sort of recalcitrant violence and uh, of a, a sort of white grievance prevail and and you know that that's of course the Klan um, among others but that's the Klan in in Reconstruction that's the the white citizens councils and and the Klan again in a moment like uh, the the civil rights movement. And, and now, of course, it's sort of Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, QAnon. And, and, and to your point, there is, there is again, this, this blend of spectacle and performance, but it is always, that's, that's always sort of becomes the face of something that does have a well-organized, well-funded and, and violent undercurrent to it. So while the QAnon shaman wearing the animal fur is going to, you know, the, 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 the spectacle of that is going to, is, is going to flood Twitter and, and, you know, the, the times, but, but, but then there's, you know, the men with zip ties, the men with long guns, the men with pipe bombs, it's setting up the, the gallows. <laughs> um, maybe that's a sort of blend of, 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 of spectacle and, and violence in that case. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's in some ways the same, they're, they're reading out of, out of the same playbook. And, and, and Trump, of course, knew that and, and why he made something like the, the protection of, of Confederate monuments 
in an election year, sort of in the, in the summer leading up to election, sort of the only the only thing he could talk about and, and make a sort of primary platform of his campaign. But because they are the embodiments, these symbols of white grievance, of, of white prerogative, of, of, of white power, and an idea that this is this country is for you, the sorts of claims that the past might have on us are meaningless. There's no, there's, this this country is for you and it's made by the, the heroes who who built this this country for you. Um, and anyone who says otherwise is is lying or, or hates this country and is trying to undermine it. Of course, we see this in one of his last acts in office is to publish the, I mean, the the, the comically bad and, and I think now it's been shown to be plagiarized, but the, the 1776 report that that can only think about America and America's past in terms of uh, exceptionalism, that there, there can be no sort of a critique levied against it, specifically one a critique that might um, seek to hold the, the country and its leaders accountable to the sorts of racial inequities that, that we continue to grapple with. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, st- we're, we're still, we're still wrestling with this question of whether we can fully become a, a multiracial democracy because there are those willing to go to the mattresses for a, a country that tilts the board in their favor. To close, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you spent five years trying to understand the South and America, you know, through through this lens of these Nathan Bedford Forest monuments and memorials. We seem to be perhaps on on the precipice of, of another shot at that multiracial democracy. You know, we have most diverse cabinet that we've had in American history. We have a black Southeast Asian woman as our vice president, uh, first for, for all three in the South, you know, we, we've seen a black senator and a Jewish senator elected from Georgia, uh, first from those states, and, and the first Jewish senator from the Deep South, you know, in, since the late 1800s. What is your sense of the potential and what is your sense of the dangers on the horizon and, and what we should be watching for, you know, in the next four years? Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a, a tweet from... Ayanna Presley the other day, I was saying, you know, if you really want to thank black women, you know, policy is our love language. Forget your forget your thank yous and your thoughts and prayers. Like policy is our love language. So, you know, I, I think if we really want to to forge uh, an, an equal society and really grapple with with the legacy of, of white supremacy and, and with slavery and, and all of its incarnations after the Civil War, um, I mean, we, we have to rethink how we fund schools, canceling college debt. Black women are the, are the most encumbered by, by student debt. Canceling that, rethinking how we, how we um, fund public schools, making higher education more accessible, you know, redistricting, fully enfranchising, formerly incarcerated, incarcerated people, um, you know, making voting so much easier and then grappling with things like the the prison industrial complex, uh, how how we police, especially communities of color. I mean, all I mean in sort of every facet of society, knowing that the the inequalities that we have there are not by accident, but because of this project, because of how race operates in this country, and 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 hoarding opportunities for some to and, and excluding them from others, and and actually using the past to teach us that like active interventions are necessary, that this isn't the market 
the, 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 the genius of the market sort of working itself out in the most efficient way. But instead, we have pursued policies that have gotten us to this moment, and we need to pursue actively pursue policies that will get us out of this moment. That, of course, is, re- requires uh, what would be a pretty massive redistribution of wealth in this country. And, and I think that that's why there's, there are projects like the, the 1776 project, uh, the backlash to the Times' 1619 project, things like, you know, Mike Pompeo talking about how, uh, you know, the inability of someone to critique America. Because really, when you make that critique about the past, when you tell a different story of, of America's past, you're implicitly and, and often ex- explicitly trying to hold its leaders to account for what's happening in the present, for that lasting injury. And so I think that's why there are these battles over the meaning of our past, because they they have a huge bearing on how decisions about policy get made in the present. So I think if we can rethink and, and get on on onto common ground about the meaning of the past and the legacy of slavery, you know, hopefully there can be more consensus for these active interventions and funding these ventures that, that that might grapple with with the sorts of inequalities that we have. But to, to your point, you know, as I hear myself lay that out, I, I'm not particularly optimistic that a Biden administration will fervently pursue at the sort of scale required. I mean, this is really 11th hour stuff. So maybe, maybe it, it's absolutely a, a, a more diverse cabinet and, and executive branch and and, and increasingly in, in, in the Congress too. And, and, and those, are, those are good things. Don't get me wrong. But again, like if, if policy is the love language, maybe, I'm, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I, I, I hope that more and more people are sort of realizing the moment that we're in and the, the, the stakes here. But if, if nothing else, the, the process of working on this book has, has really tempered any kind of <laughs> optimism about America's ability to, to forcefully uh, pursue uh, racial equality. Connor, thank you so much for coming on The Reckoning Review, and we'll talk to you again soon. Great. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Sean. And that's our show, folks. I think it's important to know how pervasive these myths can be if they go unchecked, especially when they offer some comfort to people in charge. If this interview sparked any ideas or questions of your own, join us in continuing the conversation by subscribing to our newsletter at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. Thank you to Connor Town O'Neill for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. You can buy his book, Down Along With That Devil's Bones, from your favorite local bookstore, and you can subscribe to White Lies wherever you get your podcasts. The theme music for this show was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie, and today's episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. Our show was edited by Steph Colburn and her terrific team at Edit Audio. Please go check out their podcast, Hope This Finds Me Well, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review so we can share more great stories from the South. And then go follow us all over social media. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us. <laughs>